0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I'm going to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're continuing our study through the fourth gospel, and I want to remind you And I want to keep reminding you that this gospel was primarily written to bring people to faith in Christ. John 20, 31 says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. You know, when someone shows some interest in spiritual matters, often people in the church will tell them, You know, read the fourth gospel. You know, read the Gospel of John. And the reason they do that is because this is the purpose, this Gospel was written. It was written to bring people to faith. Now, we are currently in chapter 7. Let me ask you a few questions here to set the context. The events of chapter 7 take place where? Where? Jerusalem. Okay, more specifically, the Jewish temple... In Jerusalem. That's, that's where they're at. That's where this is taking place. Alright? What's happening in the temple? Okay, it's the Feast of Booths. The seven-day Feast of Tabernacles or booths, booths is taking place. So the context, the setting of John... And remember, when, you, when you're reading Scripture, context is king. You have to know the context or you just end up pulling things out and making them mean whatever you want them to mean. So the context at the setting of chapters 7 and 8, is Yeshua's visit to Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And I think understanding some of the rituals of this feast in Yeshua's time will give us background material for understanding what is really happening here. Now, the Jews held the Feast of Tabernacles in really high esteem for almost a thousand years when the events of our text have taken place. Back in 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 2, we see the dedication of Solomon's temple, which took place approximately 960 BC. The dedication of the temple took place in conjunction with the Feast of Tabernacles. And for that reason, the Jews, even in Yeshua's time, saw a special connection between the temple and the feast. Now you've got to hang on to that, okay? Put that in your thinking somewhere. There's a connection between this feast and the temple. In Zechariah, chapter 14, verse 17, warns that rain will be withheld if tabernacles is not properly celebrated. Zechariah 14 says, Then it will come about that any who are left in all the nations that went against Jerusalem will go up from year to year to worship the King, Yahweh of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. To cel- and it will be That whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, Yahweh of hosts, there will be no rain on them. Now, you gotta connect these things here. We're connecting king, the feast of booths, and no rain. This was a festival that celebrated water. So here we see these things are connected. Now, in a land where rain is scarce, In a very dry land, water is a really important commodity. And water is a picture of salvation. I think you can understand that. If you don't have water, you die. So water will save you. Now, we're not talking about eternal salvation, but physical salvation. The Tanakh uses the term living water as a metaphor for Yahweh. So tabernacles is the seventh feast. There's seven of them. It lasts for seven days. The number seven is the biblical number of completion. So this is the grand finale in God's plan of redemption. Because these feasts lay out a picture of God's plan of salvation. And this is the final feast. This is Yahweh dwelling with His people. Now, the Feast of Tabernacle was known as the most joyous of all the feasts. It was the most important, the most prominent feast. It's mentioned more often in Scripture than any other feast. And it was referred to by the ancient rabbis as simply as the holiday. Because it was the most prominent one. Each morning during the Feast of Tabernacles, a water libation, a sacrificial pouring out of water, was offered to Yahweh. And the pouring out of water represented God's provision in the wilderness in the past, where the water came from the rock to provide for them, and His provision of refreshment and cleansing in the Messianic age. So it looked backwards and it remember what God had done for them in the wilderness. It looked forward from their time point of what God would do for them in the Messianic age. And the Jews regarded God's provision of water in the wilderness and rain in the land as harbingers of His great blessings on the nation under Messiah's reign. So thus the water rite in the Feast of Tabernacles had strong Messianic connotations. And this ritual was a symbolic, prophetic prayer For the coming of the Messiah, who would be the source of God's blessing. So this whole thing, all the feasts really, they're about Messiah. And this is about Messiah and about the blessings of water. Now shortly after dawn in the morning, while they're preparing the sacrifices that are going to be sacrificed that day, the high priest was accompanied by a joyous procession of music and worshipers down to the pool of Siloam. You can see the temple there and the pools down there. They would go down to the pool This whole group, they're singing their songs. They're having a great time. The high priest carried a golden pitcher capable of holding about a quart of water. He would carefully dip the pitcher in the pool and bring it back to the temple mount. Now, this was intended to represent water that flowed from the rock when Moses struck the rock and provided for them in the wilderness. Now, the Siloam pool is fed by the Gihon Spring, which is the only source of water for the entire city of Jerusalem. Now, does the name Gihon ring a bell? Gihon Spring, where have we heard that? It's the name of one of the rivers that flows out of Eden to nourish the earth in Genesis 2.13. Okay, so this water is coming from the Garden of Eden, All right, nourishing it, coming to this pool Here we have the water. They're taking it from this pool and taking it back. Now, at the same time this is going on, another procession went down to a nearby location south of Jerusalem, known as Matzah, where willows grew by the brook in great abundance. They gathered these long, thin willows, and they brought them back to the temple. And at the temple, these willows were placed alongside the altar so their tops would form like a canopy of drooping branches over the altar. Meanwhile, the high priest, with the water from the pool of Siloam, he went back, you know, with this procession, going back. He'd reached the southern gate of the temple. Anybody know what that southern gate was called? What gate he went through? It's the water gate. Okay, the water gate. You've heard of the water gate in Jerusalem. This is That's why it's called the water gate, because the ceremony, he goes back through there. As he entered, three blasts on silver trumpets sounded outside the temple, and the priest, with one voice, repeated the words of Isaiah Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Alright? They're talking about the refreshing salvation that God would bring. Anybody know what the Hebrew word for salvation here is? Yeshua. That's what Yeshua means. Yahweh is Yahweh's salvation. So the high priest slowly proceeds to the stone altar in the inner court of the temple, He ascends to the right side of the ramp and at the peak he would turn to the left where there were two silver basins which drained down to the base of the altar. One was reserved for the regular drink offering, the libations of wine, and one for the water libations during this feast. As the high priest raised the golden pitcher to pour the water, the people would shout, Raise your hand! In response, the high priest would lift his hand higher and pour the water, allowing all them to see what was going on. Now as the high priest poured the water the libation offering here before Yahweh, a drink offering of wine was simultaneously poured into the other basin, and three blasts of the silver trumpets immediately followed a pouring and signaled the start of the temple music. Now on the seventh, in the final day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the temple service reached its climax. The anticipation of rain was at its annual high. Jewish tradition held that it was on this day that God declared whether He would bring rain for the coming year's crops or not. And I'm not sure. I couldn't really find how God declared that to them, but this was what they were expecting on this day. The Lord's going to tell us if He's going to provide for our crops this year. On this final day of the feast, the temple water pouring ritual took on great importance. Water was the foremost thought on everybody's mind. Okay, they're looking forward to a harvest. They're not going to get you know the, their harvest if they don't get their rain. So they're thinking about water in that way. the water is also connected with what God has done. water's connected with what God's going to do. It's a symbol of the feast. Water is very important here. all right It reminds them of the miracles of God's protection in the wilderness. For example, the parting of the Red Sea, that's definitely a water miracle and also as we've said before, the life-giving water that came from the rock, Exodus 17 numbers 20. Now, the miraculous water from the rock saved the people. They're in the desert. Saved the people and their animals for 40 years. And it was part of the oral tradition of the Israelites that that rock followed them on their journey and provided salvation until they reached the promised land. What does Paul teach us about the rock and the life-sustaining water that the children of Israel received? Paul teaches us about this rock. Anybody remember where, when, why? Alright, 1 Corinthians 10.4 And all drank from the same spiritual drink for they were drinking He's talking about the children of Israel in the wilderness here from the same spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ So Jewish tradition held that that rock followed them around and here Paul is saying the rock that followed them the rock was Christ and He provided for them in the wilderness It nourished the children of Israel with life-giving water There's a lot of passages in the Tanakh about water and God's provision of water and His provision of salvation connected with water. According to uh, the Mishnah, Sukkot 4.1c, it was part of the liturgical service on the seven days of the festival. this, This water libation took place for seven days during each day of the festival. Now, it's in this setting, this messianic expectation, that Yeshua makes this declaration. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And that's what we see in our text. This is where we're starting in verse 37. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood up and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now he tells us on the last day, the great day of the feast. As scholars debate this and argue about this. What day is he talking about? It says the last day. But see, the feast, if you read Leviticus 23 over and over, it says the feast of seven days. But later, there was to be a Sabbath at the end of it though, so they made it an eight-day feast. All right? So... You know, they argue, was it on the seventh day? Was it on the eighth day? Well, Jewish scholars in the first century A.D., as well as modern scholars, have always identified the seventh day as the most important day of the feast. Because the eighth day was the Sabbath, and really not much happened on that day. It was a day of rest. So according to Mishnah Sukkah 4.1, ceremonies with water and lights did not continue after the seventh day. So I think this is the seventh day. All right, it's the last day of the water ritual. And as the rituals of the seventh day, the great day began, water, the gift necessary for life, was the most important thought on the minds of the people. During the past six days, trumpets gave three blasts to announce the beginning of the ceremony. But today, the seventh day, there were three sets of seven blasts. During the past six days, the priest would walk around the circuit around the great altar, but on this day, the priest marched around the altar seven times with seven trumpets blasting. What's that remind us of? This is to commemorate the march around the city of Jericho because that spelled the end of the wilderness wandering. And they are waiting now for the end of their wilderness wandering when the Messiah would show up. So they're waiting for Messiah. After the priest would pour the water... Then all the people would join the Levitical choir. The choir has been singing. But now when they finish this, the people would join in. They join in at Psalm 18, 118. Now, it's hard to get this, but if you could, if we could be transported back to the temple, back to this day, what with what we know about Yeshua, standing there watching this celebration, hearing these people sing. The last verses of Psalm 118, 22-29, I think it would cause a chill to run up and down our spines as we understood the significance of what they're singing. Here's what they're singing. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The very stone that the builders rejected is standing right there during this ceremony. This is Yahweh's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Yahweh, do save. We beseech you. They're crying out for the salvation of God. And the salvation of God is standing there. In their midst. The psalm goes on. O Yahweh, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. That's Yeshua. He has come in the name of Yahweh. He is standing there. It's at this moment that the crowd of worshipers all of a sudden becomes aware of this young rabbi from Galilee as he stands up and shouts, if anyone is thirsty. They're all, what? It's all about the water. Come to me and drink. What? Who are you? He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, normally the rabbis would sit down when they taught. But he's in a standing position, you know, drawing significance to this, and he's shouting. The word cried out here is the Greek krodzo. It's a strong word for yelling at the top of his voice. He's yelling out. Stressing the importance of what he is saying. He is claiming here to be the fulfillment of all this feast anticipated. He announced that he is the one who could provide messianic blessings. That in fact, He was the Messiah. He's saying in effect, all these things that you're doing, all these pictures, all these types, I am the fulfillment. It's all about me. Here I am. If anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Now let me ask you something. Who does Yeshua invite to come and drink? Does He say, everyone, come to me and drink. No, this is a call for the thirsty. If anyone is thirsty, that's a third class condition in the Greek, which means maybe they are, maybe they're not. Well, what is thirst? What what are we even talking about? I think you know what thirst is, right? But let me give you a dictionary definition in case you're not sure of what this means. It's a feeling or needing or wanting to drink something. You know what thirsty is, right? When you're not thirsty, you don't think about water, right? Don't think about it unless you're, you know, programmed on a health kick and you know you're supposed to be doing so you do it. Otherwise, you don't drink unless you get thirsty. So those who have a need or desire to drink are to come to Yeshua and drink. If you're not thirsty, you're not going to be thinking about that, right? So here's the question Who are the thirsty? Who, who are the thirsty? Who's he inviting here? Well, let me give you a hint. Remember the context, okay? Chapter 6 is part of the context of this book. What was chapter 6 all about? What did we learn in chapter 6? All right, the sovereignty of God in salvation. So who are the thirsty? Well, let's look at John 6.44. No one can come to me. Get that. Blank statement. No one can come this, now the context of chapter 6, he's dealing with these large crowds of unbelievers who are swarming to him. They want him to be king. He, and then he's sharing with them truth and they don't get it. And so in that context, I don't understand what you're saying. He says, nobody can come to me. I'm calling you, but you can't do it. Why? Unless, oh, something has to happen? Right. What has to happen? The Father who sent me draws him. Unless God draws you, you can't come to me. Let me put it this way, and I think I can do this. No one can come to me and drink unless the Father who sent me gives him a thirst. And I'll raise him up at the last day. Okay? That's what he's saying here. This is from chapter 6. He's flowing in the same context the thirsty are those who we saw in chapter 6 who are given by the Father to the Son. It is those who are drawn by the Father. From the rest of the Scripture, it's those who are called, it's those who are chosen. If you're thirsty, you'll want water. If you're not thirsty, someone stand up there and say, I got water here. And you're like, I don't care. And that's unsaved man. I don't care. I don't care what he's offering. I don't need it. I don't want it. I'm not interested in it. How thirsty do you think this guy is? This guy hasn't had a drink for days. Okay? <laughs> no, he hasn't had water for days, and he's not thirsty. He doesn't care. Why? He's dead. How thirsty do you think dead men are? Well, the Bible teaches that we are dead in trespasses and sins, so we don't have a thirst unless we are given life. See, thirst is a sign of life. And life comes from Yahweh. Thirst is a knowledge of the problem. I got, well, I'm thirsty. I need something. I need water. And this is he's talking about in a spiritual sense. When you realize you have a need for God, it's because God is working in your heart. All those who realize the problem are to come to Him and drink. Now, what does he mean, come to Yeshua and drink? Well, again... As we saw in the 6th chapter, he defines coming, it's believing. Come to me and drink. Those who believe. So to come to him is to believe in him. They're synonymous. We saw that in chapter 6. To believe in him is to come to him. Coming and drinking is what happens when you believe. It's what it means to believe. That's what drinking of Yeshua means. It's the peril. It's to believe. To believe in him. And when you realize you have a need, and until you do realize you have a need, you will never come. You don't care. You're not thirsty. I don't care if people are giving water away free. I don't want it. I don't need it. But if you've been out, you haven't had a drink for days, and you see someone offering free water, you're pretty excited about that. Okay? Because you realize you have a need. He says in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. What is Yeshua claiming to be here? He's claiming to be the true rock from the wilderness wandering. This is what Paul says. As you read through this fourth gospel, you see over and over that Yeshua keeps claiming to be fulfillment, the fulfillment of old covenant things, old covenant events. In chapter two, he claims to be the true temple. In chapter three, he claimed to be the brazen serpent that was lifted up. In chapter 6, he claimed to be the true bread from heaven, the true manna. In chapter 7, he claims to be the rock. In chapter 8, we'll see that he claims to be the true light, the light-giving cloud by which Israel was guided through the wilderness. Yeshua is the true culmination of the Old Covenant situations, objects, ceremonies, and events which foreshadowed him. All these things, literally the whole Old Covenant, pictured Christ. Pointing to Christ. But these feasts were all about redemption. Now, verse 38 has been the subject of a lot of debate for a couple of reasons. There's two basic problems with this verse. One of them is the passage, the scripture said. And so there's said, what did the scripture say? You know, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And they're like, we can't find that quote. But he says the scripture said. Well, the second problem is. His innermost being. They're arguing, who is His? Is this referring to Yeshua? Or is this referring to the believer? Who is the source of water? Is it Yeshua or the believer? Well, let's start at the first one, the Scripture. To which biblical passage is Yeshua referring when He says, from His innermost being will flow rivers of living water? Well, the problem is, this is not an exact quote from the Hebrew Tanakh. Or from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So people argue, well, that's not a quote. Well, I think Yeshua is phrasing here this from the different scriptures that we see throughout. There are different passages that are relevant. I mean, there's so many passages in the Tanakh that talk about water and the importance of water. The Bible speaks over and over, life-giving water that he provides. So I think that's the scripture says this. You know, it's like if if I were to say, the Bible says that we're justified not by the works we do, but by faith in Yeshua. That's not an exact quote from anywhere. But the Bible teaches that. And I think that's what he's saying here. The Scripture says this. Over and over the Scripture talks about this. We'll look at some of them in a minute here. Then the second one, he says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Who is the antecedent of his innermost being? And scholars are divided on this. But I think most side with the idea that it's probably the believer he's talking about here. Because it's, he says, he who believes in me, that's the believer, as the scripture said, from his. So the antecedent would be the believer. Now this doesn't mean that Yeshua was saying that we are the source of living water. The living water here is a reference to the Holy Spirit. We see that elsewhere in the Gospels. And it's Yeshua who pours out the Spirit. We already saw this in chapter 4. He says, but whosoever drinks of the water that I will give him. So Yeshua is the source of this water. And it's a reference to the Spirit. He says, he shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. These passages are very similar. Okay? Talking about the same thing. He talked about this at the well There's a lady at the well trying to get water, he's talking about spiritual water. Now he's in a festival, they're talking about water, he's talking again about spiritual water. And quenching your thirst for spiritual things. Yeshua, you know, speaking again about springing up, you know, this idea of rivers of living water. When we come to the Lord Yeshua and believe in Him, we are united to Him. We're united. Paul's gonna teach this. Paul develops this as we get into the whole idea of the union of the believer with Christ. Alright? So, we learn from that that when we come to Him, we're united to Him, and the life of Christ flows through us, and so we do become the source of living water as a channel of the Lord Himself. We're united with Christ. Everything Christ is and has, we are and we have because we are one in Him. I think the greatest thing a believer could understand is his position in Christ. If you understand that, it will change the way you live. We're united to Him. We're one with Him. And so from our innermost being flows this river of living water. Again, this is referring to the Spirit. The works of the Spirit. The living water is that divine gift, but it's channeled through the believers to the world. In other words, the world looks at us, they ought to see spiritual things. He calls it living water. Living is the Greek word zoe here. It means life or to live. The living water that Yeshua promised has two meanings. Literally, it refers to flowing water. When they talked about living water, they could be walking, something that's moving. In contrast to stagnant water, but metaphorically it refers to the cleansing grace of the Holy Spirit. Just as in the encounter with Nicodemus, Yeshua uses common words and expressions to express deeper spiritual meanings. That's what he's doing here with living water. See, the Tanakh used the word water to symbolize doctrine or teaching, but the Tanakh uses living water as a metaphor for Yahweh. For example, Jeremiah 2, 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. This is Yahweh talking. The fountain of living waters. They've forsaken him. He provides the living waters. To hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So they're rejecting the true God and they're going after false gods. Jeremiah 17, 13. Oh 13. Yahweh, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on the earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even Yahweh. So, Yahweh, all who forsake you, have forsaken the living water. Because there is no other source of it. But if these verses referring to the living water of Yahweh. Both of them are referring to that. Now, Zechariah 14.8 speaks of living water flowing out of Jerusalem in the day of Messiah. And it's a picture. And I think probably most of you are familiar with Ezekiel 47, right? What happens in Ezekiel 47? All right, great passage. You know, he takes them, he shows them the temple, and there's water coming out from under the temple. A little trickle. And he takes them a thousand furlong, and it's... Up to the ankles. It takes them a thousand more. It's up to the knees. It takes them a thousand more. It's up to the waist, it takes them a thousand more. It's so deep you could swim in it. This water is just flowing out from the temple. Keep that in mind. The temple was where the water comes from. Ezekiel forty seven nine. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes, this is the water is coming out of the temple, will live. See, this water brings life. And there will be very many fish for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. This is a river of life. And it's flowing from out, from underneath the temple. Now what's interesting about Ezekiel 47, if you go to Revelation, you find the same idea. The river flowing, bringing life. The Greek phrase living water might also be translated water of living or the water of life. So here's this water coming out of the temple. Now remember, in in chapter 2, Yeshua taught us that He was the true temple. So the water's coming from Him. He is the temple. He's providing the living waters, which is spiritual life. That's what He's talking about, spiritual life. Now the water in Ezekiel 47 would flow from beneath the temple, which now is Yeshua. The water's coming from Him. He is providing. He's the new temple. He's providing the water of life. From now on, Yeshua is saying the center and the source of the world's life was no longer the temple in Jerusalem. But Yeshua Himself is the new temple. In both the Ezekiel passage and in Revelation, we see this river flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, which is, of course, the temple. And as we're told in Revelation, the temple of the new Jerusalem is in fact God and Christ the Lamb. He is the temple. The inexhaustible mosaic supply of living water in the wilderness was now found in Yeshua, the rock. But this he spake, it says, of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Yeshua is not yet glorified. This he spoke of the Spirit. In other words, Rivers of the Living Water is a reference to the ministry of the Spirit. He provides life whom those who believed in him were to receive. They were to receive the Spirit. In other words, you see, they haven't received it yet. You're going to receive it, he says. When? When did the Spirit come? Pentecost, the birth of the church. That was the promise. All right? And this includes all subsequent believers of the church age, in addition to those at that day. The waters came at Pentecost, for the Spirit, he says, was not yet given at that time. Now, the King James Version and the New American Standard Version both, both place the word given in italics. When a word is in italics, what's it mean? It's not in the text. Okay, they've added the word to help it flow smoother. So the text literally says the Holy Spirit was not yet. And some people freak out over that. You know, the Holy Spirit wasn't in existence. That's not what it's saying. It's speaking from a human standpoint. It has nothing to do with the pre-existence of the third person of the Godhead. You know, you go back as early as Genesis 1-2 and you meet the Spirit moving over the waters. Okay, so the Spirit hadn't come in His new covenant ministry of indwelling believers. That began at Pentecost. After Yeshua was glorified. Look at John 16, 7. But I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go away, I'll send Him to you. So on the day of Pentecost, after the Lord was glorified, He sent the Spirit who came with power. Look at Acts 1, 4, and 5, what Yeshua tells His disciples. Gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait. For the Father had what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So the Father promised the Spirit. He said, you're going to get it not many days from now. Now, again, we have to take into account here audience relevance. He's speaking to his disciples pre Pentecost. You know, there are people today, and I'm sure you know, that teach that a person does not receive the Holy Spirit when they believe. You aware of that teaching? They, they receive the forgiveness of sins when they trust Christ. But later, at some moment in time, you know, they receive the Holy Spirit by praying through or through self-surrender or some, you know, and many of these groups say the evidence that you got the Spirit is what? Speaking in tongues. So if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have evidence of the Spirit, and therefore, you know, you got to try to get the Spirit, even though you're a Christian. Well, that's not biblical at all, okay? Again, you have, and they'll pull passages like this, you know, they promised, well, they promised it because it hadn't come yet. you got to know what time period you're looking at, all right? They teach this idea of a second work of grace. You're saved, but now you got to work to get the, no, listen, when you're saved, you get it all. Okay. There's not anything held back from you. It's not like if you be good, you'll get the rest of this. No, you get it all at the moment of salvation. You get Christ when you believe. And all that he is and has, you get that at the moment of salvation. Lazarus says here that, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. They were gonna get it. All who believe were gonna get it. Paul put it this way in Romans. However, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. To be in the flesh is to not have Christ. You're in the Spirit. If indeed, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if any man does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. You're not a Christian. You're not a believer. All believers, every believer, has been baptized by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Paul says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of the one Spirit. We're all baptized. Since Pentecost, now this changed at Pentecost because prior to Pentecost the Spirit hadn't come. Once Pentecost, once the Spirit came, everybody who trusts in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. All believers, every one of us, have the rivers of living water flowing through their innermost being. Again, that's a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit, right? So let me ask you this. Is this evident in you? Is the work of the Spirit, is it obvious that the Spirit resides in you? How do you know that? Well, I think you should see it, right? The Bible talks about this. It's, you know, it's rivers of living water flowing from your innermost being. Now, Lazarus, this is, these are the words of the Lord. The Lord's standing at the festival. He gives us his words. And then we get the comment on the, what the people, how the people respond to this, okay? Again, it's water ceremony. All this about water. And he stands up and claims to be, I'm the fulfillment of all this. And they're like, what? So what's their response going to be? How do the people react to this? Like, wow, this is great. Here he is, finally. Well, verse 40 says, Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, saying, This certainly is the prophet. So some of them think, yeah, this is the prophet. What prophet? What's the prophet? Who's the prophet? This is referring specifically to the prophet that Moses had written about in Deuteronomy 18, that God told Moses was he was going to bring. Let's look at Deuteronomy 18, because it's important to understand who this prophet is, because this is who they're calling Yeshua. Yahweh said to me, then have I spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. I will put my words in his mouth. So he's promising, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses. Another one like Moses. And I'm going to put my words in this prophet's mouth. Now, Yeshua claims this for himself. He claims that have the very words of God put in his mouth in John 12, 49. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. See, he is speaking only the words that come from the Father. He's not speaking on his own initiative because he is the prophet. He goes on to say, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall come about, now watch this part, whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So God says, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, Moses, and they better listen to him because if they don't listen to this prophet, they're cut off from the people. We're told in Acts three. So if they thought that he was the prophet, they better be listening to everything he's saying. And what's he saying? He's saying, I'm Yahweh. I'm the fulfillment of Messiah. I am Messiah. So if they're saying he's the prophet, They should be believers. The text doesn't really tell us. It doesn't say they believe. They just thought he was the prophet. But that's pretty significant if they really believe that. But others were saying, this is the Christ. This is the more spiritual group. Okay, They're saying, this is the fulfillment of Messiah. They believe he's the promised one. Now, remember why this book was written. That you may believe Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you might have life for his name. So they believe he's the Christ. That's great. you know I would say it sounds like these people have believed what he's saying they've come to faith in Christ. but you got another group still others were saying, surely the Christ's not going to come from Galilee is he? man they're on this Galilee thing continually, right This group is saying this can't be the Christ. this can't be. the people knew the prophecy that Messiah would come from Kings King David's lineage, and they knew Micah's prophecy about his birth in Bethlehem. So they're confused about his origins. I mean, he's supposed to be a Judean, but he's a Galilean. He wasn't, but they thought he was. All right. I think verse 42 is another illustration of irony. They, the, the scholars call it Johannian irony. I call it Lazarus' irony. <laughs> okay? Yeah, Lazarian irony. Because look at, look at 42. He has not, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendant of David? Yes, it did say that, right? And from Bethlehem. Yes, it did say that. The village where David was. That's exactly what the scripture says. And that's why they don't believe he's the Christ. When in fact, that's where he came from. (laughs) So it's total irony. You know, they don't believe because he came from Bethlehem. That's the reason to believe. That's what the Bible says. You know, maybe, just maybe, they should have investigated. Maybe, you know, there's so much confusion. Why don't they just go to Yeshua and say, Yeshua, where were you born? Betlecum. I was born in the house of bread because I'm the bread of life. Okay? They would have been, what? Yeah, go to the temple, dig up the registry and find out. No, they just, they never asked. You know, when people have their minds made up. They don't ask questions. I know what I believe. Don't confuse me with the facts, okay? Right? So they, they, they didn't want to be confused with the facts. They go on in verse 43. Watch this. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. A division. Some are saying he's a prophet. Some are saying he's a Messiah. Some say, no, he's a deceiver. We don't want anything to do with him. Listen, this is what the Scripture says about Yeshua over and over. He causes division, right? Simeon says to Yeshua's mother in Luke 2.34, Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, for a sign to be opposed. He causes this division. Why? Because of the things he says, because of the things he claims. Yeshua confirmed this of his own person in Matthew 10.34. He says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He comes and he brings division within households, within families. Why? Because people are divided on who he is. Some people say, oh, he's no more than a good prophet. He was just a good man. He was a nice man. Some people are saying he's God. And when you believe something with some kind of passion, division occurs. See, it's what we believe that causes the division. The truth always divides. Always divides. Because if you're going to stand on something, someone else opposes that. You're, well, no, the Bible says he's God. So, well, no, he was the Son of God. He was a good man. He was, no, 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 no. That doesn't, you know. You got it, there's a division there. Okay? The truth divides. 744. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. I mean, there's a division, so they let's arrest this guy. Alright? That's what the word seize means. They wanted to arrest him. This is the third time in the chapter they wanted to arrest him. Verse 30 it says they wanted to seize him. Verse 32, they sent officers to seize him. They can't do it because it's not his time to die. And God sovereignly would not permit them to arrest. They wanted to do it. Listen, they wanted to arrest him. That's what they wanted to do. But nobody did. Why? Because God didn't want them to. And listen, God's want trumps your want every time. Every time. God gets what He wants. He's not up there in heaven frustrated. Oh man, I wish I could get Him to do this. I just won't listen. Well, that's not the God of the Bible, people. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatsoever He pleases. Whatever He pleases, He does. Why? Because He's God. That's the prerogative of deity. When you get to be God, you can do whatever you want. It's not going to happen, people. Okay? So they wanted to arrest him because of this division, but they just couldn't do it. Now watch this. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, the the chief priests and the Pharisees said to the officers, "Uh, why didn't you bring him? Where is he? See, the temple police had been sent out to arrest Yeshua. Go, you know, the Sanhedrin sent them. Go get them, bring them back. They're the police. They got swords. They they got power, all right? And so they come back. And remember, this is the last day of the feast. This is the seventh day, right? Okay? When were these guards sent out to arrest them? Verse 32 said it was the middle of the feast. So it's been at least three days earlier. They were sent to arrest Yeshua. They come back. Couple days later, and they don't have them. Why? What? what have they done? So here's these guards. They go to arrest them, and they're going through the crowds, you know, trying to get to them, and they hear him talking, and they're like, wow, that's interesting. What? And they, they stopped, and all of a sudden, these guys are standing there, mesmerized, listening to what he says. It seemed they were so taken in by his teaching, they forgot to do it. What they're supposed to do is arrest them. The temple police, they didn't arrest them. Watch the next verse, 46. The officers answered, they're they're responding to the Sanhedrin, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. What's kind of interesting here is the Greek here for man, anthropos, is emphatic in the Greek text here. Never has a human being spoken like this. Why? Because he was the God-man. He wasn't just a human being. That's why no one ever spoke like that. And they're just blown away. That's the response. These guards are under order from the Sanhedrin to arrest them. They don't try to hide it. You know, they come back and they would have said, ah, the crowds are so close we couldn't even get near them. You know, they could have made up some story. We couldn't find them. None of this stuff. They readily admit they failed in their mission. No one spoke like this. <laughs> they didn't want to hear that. But here's what we have to remember. These officers are not hardened Roman soldiers, you know, who carried out their orders as a, a you know, just because they're told to do it. They're not automatons. All right. The statement is another witness to the true identity of Yeshua. These guys are blown away. And remember, these guys are Levites whose interests are somewhat in religious things. So they're going to arrest him and they're like, wow, this is impressive. And so they get back and they tell the "He no one spoke, ever spoke like this guy. You think they wanted to hear that? They're really ticked off. Watch. The Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? See, you've got to be led astray if you believe them. Okay? That's their view. Now, what could they say? No one of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him. Has they? Have they? Now, they're implying that all the leaders without exception believed he was a deceiver. But that's not true, right? Because Nicodemus, what did Nicodemus in chapter 3 already say about him? He says, we know you come from God because nobody can do the things you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus, he's a Pharisee and he's like, hmm, these guys, he, he comes from God. Now, I think this is another example of Johannian irony. Because listen, remember this gospel was written Late. Okay, after the fact. All right, this is written, you know, in the 60s. Okay, so the readers ha- have the story already. They know the backstory. So This statement is true from a historical point at the conversation. You know, they might be saying no one's believed on him. But to the readers of this gospel, some 30 some years later, when they say none of the Pharisees have believed in him, what would they say? You know of any Pharisees that believed in Yeshua? Got any names for me? Name a Pharisee that believed in Him. Okay. Probably one of the most famous Pharisees of all, huh? The Apostle Paul? Did he believe? Wrote most of the New Testament? You know, so the guy, the people that are reading this later, they're reading none of the Pharisees. are like, oh, what about Paul? You know? What about Nicodemus? He's there at the burial. Obviously, he's come to faith. We read in Acts 6, 7, and fifteen, five that a lot of the Pharisees and scribes came to believe in Him. They're trusting in Christ. But these Pharisees are just blind. They can't get it. None of us have trusted Him. It's these dumb people. And that's what they say. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. There's considerable evidence that the Pharisees considered themselves superior to the common people who didn't devote themselves, to, didn't devote their lives to the study of the law. Now, the Pharisees called the common people the people of the land. Am Haaretz in Hebrew, the people of the land. Now, among the rabbis, the people of the land always refers to the people who don't know the law. So when you see that phrase, the people of the land, they're referring to, these are dumb people, they don't even know the law, referring to the law of Moses, both, both as found in the scripture and preserved in the oral tradition. They don't know the oral tradition, they don't know the law, they are Amharats, they're just people of the land. Rabbi Meir said, if anyone has learned the scripture and the Mishnah, that's the oral tradition... But has not served as a student of the learned. You see, the learned there is capitalized. That means they haven't learned under one of their rabbis. He is one of the people of the land. Okay? Am um, Haharetz. They're just a the people of the land. They're just dumb. They don't, they don't know anything. Okay? Even the more liberal minded Rabbi Halel, a generation before Christ, insisted. A brutish man does not fear sin, and no people of the land is pious. (laughs) So, (laughs) listen, these self-righteous hypocrites look down on and despise the very people they were supposed to be shepherding. They just despised them. So let me give you a little hint here. If anybody calls you a Pharisee, it's not a compliment. Okay, it's not a compliment to be called a Pharisee. All right, because they were just self-righteous. They had their own view and they didn't care about the truth. They never investigated it. Now, the Gospels imply that Yeshua directed much of his ministry at the Haaretz, the people of the land. And that just made the scribes and the Pharisees nuts. He's ministering to these people, these idiots. They don't know anything. In verse 50 and 51, he says, Nicodemus, who came to him before being one of them, one of who? One of the Pharisees. He was a Pharisee. He said to the Pharisees, our law, so, you know, these guys are all big about the law and holding the law and knowing the law. He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears him and knows what he is doing, does it? In other words, wait a minute, you guys you are trying to condemn him and you really haven't, you know, looked into this right. This is ironic that Nicodemus questioned it reflects the command we saw earlier from Yeshua in John seven twenty four, where he says, Don't judge by appearance, but judge by a righteous standard. They weren't judging righteously. If they would have just asked Yeshua where he was born, it could have cleared up a lot of their problems, but they didn't really not care about that. All right? Their judgment was based upon jealousy because the people were starting to follow him instead of them. When he spoke, he spoke against them over and over. Read Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Woe is a pronouncement of damnation. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Over and over. Hypocrites. Whited sepulchers. He goes on. I mean, he's just ripping them apart. And so they don't like him. And the people are following him. The rabbis taught, unless a mortal hears the pleas, that a man can put forward is not able to give judgment. See, they violated their own rules, though. They were judging him anyway. They didn't care. They just hated him. 52, they answered him. Now, this is Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, you know, hey, you got to, let's do this righteously. Let's judge according to law. So they answered Nicodemus, you are not also from Galilee, are you? They can't refute his logic, okay? So what do they do? When you're in an argument with someone and you're losing, what do you do? You attack the person. I mean, that's a poor way to debate, okay? But when you do that, you're not trying to arrive at the truth. You're just trying to win an argument, okay? So when a person gets something on you and you realize you're losing, you just go at that person. So that's what they do. They say, Nicodemus, you're from Galilee too? They charge him. Listen, this is a major insult to a Judean. You hick? That's a hick town. A northern hick town. Those people don't know anything. You one of them? Listen, what they're doing here is they're mocking one of their own Sanhedrin members. They mock them. These guys are sick. If you don't agree with them, they don't care which side you're on. They're, you're against them and they come at you. He just asked them, what about the law? Doesn't our law teach this? And they're like, you Galilean... And they blast a the guy. They don't care about truth. They don't care. Now watch what, these, watch what these guys say. Search and see. No prophet arises out of Galilee. See, these are, they were big on this. What's wrong with that phrase? Search and see. No prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, one of the things that's wrong with that is Jonah. You ever heard of Jonah, the prophet? You know where he's from? Galilee. 2 Kings 14.25. Hosea was from Galilee. Nahum was from Galilee. Probably Elijah and Elisha were also from Galilee, as was Amos. So, you know, this is a problem. You read that and you say, search and see no prophet. Well, yeah, there was a lot of prophets from Galilee. So what are they saying? Some try to help them out and say what they meant was the prophet. Search and see that the prophet does not arise out of Galilee. Okay. But, you know, that there's not really textual justification for that. Some say in the heat of the anger, they just overlook the facts. That's possible. You know, you get that way. You just start, you know, supporting your view. It doesn't matter if it lines up or not. I just got to win this argument. So you're supporting your view. Another suggestion, and this kind of goes along. I think both of these last two are probably right. That Sanhedrin didn't know the scriptures as well as they thought. No prophet arises out of Galilee. Yeah, there's quite a few. You ever heard of Jonah? Everybody knew about Jonah. Oh, there's a lot of other prophets. The Babylonian Talmud later stated this. There was not a tribe in Israel from which there did not come prophets. But these guys are saying, no, 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 no prophet comes from Galilee. They made two errors. Jonah was from Galilee. Yeshua was not. Okay? That was a total mix up. He was from Bethlehem of Jew. He was the seed of David according to the flesh. He was the Messianic king as prophesied in the Tanakh, but they were so disinterested because they'd already made up their minds. They never even bothered to ask him. Where were you born? Now notice how our author, Lazarus, I believe Lazarus wrote not only the Gospel of John, he wrote first, second, third, John, and Revelation. Alright, now notice how he closes the book of Revelation. The Spirit and the Bride say come. Alright, we know who the Spirit is. Who's the Bride? That's the church. And let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Hey, if you're thirsty, look at that. Yeshua said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come. Revelation says, if anyone is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes take the water of life Without cost. This is a call to salvation. And all the commentators stress, this is a universal call that goes out to everybody. I agree it's a universal call. But it doesn't go out to everybody. Who's it going out to? The thirsty. If you're thirsty, come on. He doesn't say anything about the non-thirsty. It's a call to salvation. Would you agree with me on that? Do this. (laughs) <laughs> All right, but here, but follow with me on this now, okay? Because this is where the church gets tripped up. This is Revelation 22, which speaks about the new heavens and the new earth, right? Now, dispensationalism teaches that the new heavens and the new earth are the eternal state. If this is the eternal state, why is the invitation going out to people? I'd like someone to answer that question for me, okay? Why is the invitation going out? Well, the invitation is going out still because, listen, the new heaven and the new earth is synonymous with the new covenant, which is synonymous with the church. And from the church goes forth the water of life for the healing of the nations. We are now believers, living in the new heavens and new earth. We are the new Jerusalem, which is the body of Christ. Yeshua and His Father are among us and we don't need a temple. Why? We don't need any of the rituals and the ceremonies in the old service of the old heaven and earth because we are in God's presence now. And from our innermost being flows this living water. And it's my prayer that as believers... That the work of the Spirit would be obvious in our lives to all we come in contact with. You know, it's very important to believe the truths. But it's also very important to live out the truths that we believe. And We should be separate from people of the world. We should look different, act different, talk different, be different. Because we are different. From our innermost being flows the Spirit. If you want to be different, all you've got to do is focus on Yeshua's second command, which is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Boy, you want to stand out in the world? And If you're not sure what that is, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 will spell it out for you. Okay, Love your neighbor as yourself. This demonstrates, I mean, people don't do, people, our world is filled with hate and discontent. You be a person that loves your neighbor, you're going to stand out. People are going to see that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, it's easy for us to look at these Pharisees and Sadducees and mock and ridicule them for their blindness. But Lord, we know from chapter 6 that they're blind because You hadn't opened their eyes. Father, we thank You that all the thirsty are invited to come. Everybody, anyone, rich, poor, black, white, slave, free, men, women, anyone who's thirsty can come. Thank you, Lord, for that. I pray that we as your church would continue to call out to the thirsty to come, to take the water of life freely. Thank you, Lord, for your awesome invitation of salvation to all who are thirsty. Amen. Amen.